This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing you politics without the boring bits. It's the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download your Times radio app. Coming up on today's episode, lovely end of week listening. The British Film Institute have opened up their archive to us, so they don't do it very often. Taking a look at some of the political content they've got. Party political broadcasts, interviews, election coverage. The sort of stuff that seemed very important at the time, but about 100 years worth of stuff, including some silent adverts, which um, will work really well on the pod. Anyway, that's coming up in just a moment. Political nerds, basically, you'll love it. We'll speak to Gabby Hinsliff and James Marriott in just a moment. But first, as we always do on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned that Alan Titchmarch asks Keir Starmer the best questions. Your mum was a great donkey person. Uh, we learned that once you get Keir Starmer talking about donkeys... My mum and dad had four children, and as we each left home, they replaced us with a donkey. Uh, there's just no stopping him. Because they've obviously found the donkey for their nativity. We learned what Rishi Sunat wants for Christmas. What do you want for Christmas? What do I want for Christmas? Yes. Oh, what gosh, I haven't want? really thought about that, actually. I'd what like to have a day off. Uh, we also learn what Rishi Sunak wants to be when he's grown up. I wanted to be like a Star Wars character, like a Jedi Knight, or fly an X-Wing. Now, have you heard of an X-Wing? No! Okay, right, so an X-Wing is a special spaceship in Star Wars and I wanted to fly one of those. We learned from Tory MP Nick Fletcher that... Doncaster is full. And in the next breath, he had this message for Gary Lineker and rich lefty lawyers. I asked them to sell everything that they've got. I asked them to give it all away. Then I asked them to come and get a job in Doncaster. Even though... Doncaster is full. Uh, we learned for the first time what Einar Orn pushing the buttons sounds like on air. Uh, some breaking news to bring you on Times Radio. Einar Orn is now here. Morning. Oh, here he... Oh, wow. He's live on the way. Would you like to explain to the class why you weren't here for the beginning of the show? Nope. And we learn that Penny Morden is feeling festive about the SNP. 12 hours of police questioning, 11 grand roaming charges, 10 years without school inspections, 9 sham embassies, 8 years of poor child mental health, 7 years without ferries, 6 years shirking welfare powers, 500 million overspent on Edinburgh's tram, 
four million to install a heat pump, three high-profile arrests, two overseas jollies, and a dodgy Jaguar EV. And that is what we learned this week. Now it's time for this. The Columnists on Times Radio. I was hunched on my bedroom floor with my laptop, frantically battering away at my column. Oh, is it time to drop that? Do we think, James Marion? Yeah, I'm. I'm. Over I it. think. I think. I think the new year, clean slate. Oh, God, I can't. Can we have me say? What about me saying something really like interesting and funny and erudite? Instead? Well, if you did, we'd clip it up. <laughs> <laughs> I say stuff like that all the time. I'm going to choose my own clip. Okay, fine. Uh, very good. Well, it's nice to see you anyway, Jose. Yes. Uh, no Indian night today, but we have got Gabby Hinsley. Hello, Gabby. Hello. Where Fortunately, the... I've never said anything embarrassing, so that's fine. Where in the world are you this morning, Gabby? I'm in rural Oxfordshire, where oh, it's not yes. snowing, disappointingly. Now, the last time you were on, we were talking a lot about Boris Johnson and his neighbours and all of that, because you're not far from him. What's the mood, what's the mood now? We're bored with Boris Johnson. Our new local celebrity is Jason Donovan, who has a house in Oxfordshire and uh, has told Waitrose magazine that he's spending Christmas here. So that's it. No one cares about Boris Johnson. <laughs> Excellent. Good to have that, those live updates. Now, here's a thought. Richie Sunak uh, has obviously had a tough week, uh, like every week, uh, but you know, getting into Amanda Bill through and everyone was talking about that. And I just wondered whether actually the big sort of political event of the week for him in the long term might be that he's off to this gathering in Rome this weekend. It's a political gathering hosted by the Italian Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney, uh, joining a lineup of speakers including Elon Musk and Santiago Abascal, who's the head of, this, of Spain's hard-right Vox party. Um, and actually, in terms of him getting any progress on stopping the number of people arriving into Europe and travelling through Europe and then trying to come to the UK, you know, it might mean sidling up to some quite right-wing people, but, you know, actually re-engaging with European leaders might be more successful, Gabby. The guest list does sound like the kind of worst work Christmas party ever, <laughs> but beyond that, I mean, I think it's a, it's a question of perhaps of who wants to hang out with Rishi Sunak now and who has common interests with us. And increasingly in Europe, he seems to have decided uh, that's countries preoccupied with immigration so you know the Italians we're spending a lot of time with you know rather less time with Macron who of course is the key to um, actually uh, controlling immigration from uh, across the channel it's a question of making your friends where you can find them almost it feels now and actually I suppose James because of the rise of far-right parties across Europe to some extent it's like well you've got to work with what you've got yeah who else are you going to hang out with and I guess you know it's always that kind of Every, every politician in a crisis likes to go onto the world stage and look a bit like a statesman. Whether hanging out with Giorgio Maloney makes you look that much like a statesman might be another question. But it's always a kind of relief from the kind of hurly-burly of domestic politics, isn't it, to go around the world stage, stay in a nice hotel, go to a conference. <laughs> it's not always nice to go to a conference, stay in a nice hotel. Um, uh, do you think you should be hanging out with Elon Musk so much, though? Well, that's that's really weird. I mean, that was totally embarrassing the previous time with the... Um, interview that contravened all basic standards of journalism where you have to actually ask people hard questions that aren't just, you know, softballs that they want to answer. Uh, I mean, from a wider perspective, obviously, no. From a perspective of his personal, you know, plans for his career after politics in uh, Silicon Valley, I suspect he probably should be hanging out with Elon Musk as much as he can so he can, you know, have lots of contact when he goes when he goes and works in the tech industry afterwards. It is, yeah, but from a, everyone else's perspective, it's so weird. There was an interesting piece that um, uh, Matthew Paris wrote earlier in the week that he's bought a Starlink 
thing so we can get the internet in Derbyshire. Oh, yeah, and everybody in Derbyshire is using Starlink yeah, now. Yeah, and I, I had no idea it was... Because, actually, we're quite lucky where we are. Our internet's quite good. That's one of those London biases, isn't it? That yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone in the world, apart from London, is using Starlink, apparently, and just yeah. never learn about it. Instead otherwise. of, you know, your BT dial-up. But he was sort of... Matthew was talking about feeling uh, conflicted about, you know, it's brilliant, this internet, but they are buying it off a bloke who's a bit wild. Yeah, and it's now going to run, like, what? Our internet, our robots... Our yeah. social media, it all feels cars. a bit... Cars. Do you worry about all of that? What's your internet like where you are, Gabby? I mean, obviously terrible, but preferable to Elon Musk's, I think, probably. I mean, <laughs> that's the kind of... I feel like if we're going to hand over our entire future, you know, to some AI-enabled world where we're all replaced by robots, I kind of feel like I don't want Elon Musk to be in charge of it. I don't want someone who's who's cars catch fire and who's sort of, you know... <laughs> big idea for AI is that we can all have a robot best friend in future. I'm not I'm not sure that these are the values that I particularly um, want in charge of the world. Some mad tech bro from California. And the, and the fact that um, Elon Musk's AI is the unwoke chatbot, Grok, oh, which is supposed to Grok. It's called Grok and it's trained on Twitter <laughs> to not be woke because he thinks ChatGPT is woke. So right. Grok is supposed to be like offensive and edgy. Right. So um, if you've ever used Elon Musk's Twitter, you don't really want to live in Elon Musk's world, I feel. Is it really called uh, Grok? Yeah. yeah. It's quite close to Crock of, you know, Crock of, words I can't repeat on the way. Well, we'll come to that in a minute because we're going to talk about swearing. Yeah, about well, that. there's a column in that. There's always a column in that. We'll come, we'll come to your, don't worry, we'll come to your column. <laughs> uh, we'll come to your column. Now, I want to talk about uh, Martin Lewis. So the money-saving expert Martin Lewis is on the show yesterday. And we were talking about, well, we were talking about debt and the charity that he runs, uh, which looks at the connection between money and mental health. Uh, and then we got on to, well, Christmas is coming and how do we make sure we don't get into a pickle financially this Christmas? And he ended up suggesting that we should stop buying Christmas presents for teachers to cut down on unnecessary gift giving. I, I think we should ban. This is all about agreeing. So yeah. what I say is we should actually start and we should start in September and get in all those extended lists and we should simply say, I think we shouldn't buy presents each year. I mean, if you want to, you can do the Secret Santa, some do, cap it at £5. Better, you can say, how about we give a donation to charity instead? Because the charities are hurting this year. The lack of people's income is knocking through to a lot in the third sector. And actually, it's just that it's just filling weight landfill. Now, teachers do an amazing job and they need, but perhaps, and I know many, many people now, a collective present from everybody in the class together. But then this morning, Simon Kidwell, the national president of the uh, National Association of Head Teachers, told Times Radio that he, you'll be surprised, uh, he doesn't think there should be a ban. If parents want to buy a gift, I think it's a wonderful gesture to say thank you, but no parent should ever feel pressure. I don't think we should have a blanket ban on it. Um, I think uh, parents should question, do they need to buy him a gift? Because parents, uh, teachers certainly don't expect it. Where do you stand on this one, Gabby? I think he's just being polite there. I think most teachers would be really happy if you scrapped press because they're always rubbish, aren't they? I mean, they presumably get 30 mugs saying best teacher every year if you're a primary school teacher. I once asked a teacher friend, like, what was the best present? You know, that what do our teachers actually want? Because I was stumped. And she said, basically, there's only two good things. One is like a really heartfelt letter from your favourite child in the class explaining why you're their favourite teacher. No one ever doesn't like that. And the other one is a massive bottle of wine. And as I couldn't persuade my child to ever write heart <laughs> said teacher, it was always wine. But other than that, I, just, you know, I think teachers would be thrilled if they stopped having to pretend to be pleased about getting another tin of quality stream. But Ma Ma Martin was talk, sort of also talking about the sort of competitive uh, gift giving 
thing and the you wouldn't want there to be the perception that teachers looked more favorably on the children who bought nicer presents no i mean there's a very sorry no, that was sorry. I was interrupting you. Sorry, I don't think teachers get nice enough presents to feel like that. To feel like yeah, that's true. Because it is, it is just really. a mug. It's a mug. It's a scented candle. Well, I have a very, I had a very, I have a very. Actually, when you as soon as you emailed me about this idea, I had a vivid memory of a guy called Alex in my class at school, who was a total dunce. I mean, really, <laughs> not a, not a bright kid. And um, his parents used to get the teach used to give him. Uh, the most extraordinary gifts for the teacher. And he once got our teacher, Mr. Russell, uh, a, I remember this vividly as a child because I just thought, what on earth are you doing? A, a special expensive jelly bike seat. So like you could sit on your bike with this sort of special bike seat that was like jellified to protect your buttocks. <laughs> and I was, just remember thinking, this is the creepiest thing you could possibly have done, Alex, you total freak. Um, <laughs> Are you still in touch? No, not well. I mean, maybe we will be now because maybe he'll remember that. And Eight seven trouble two. Start messing with the word time if you want to get in touch. Uh, um, but I just thought it was so weird. And that is weird. And he, he also was not a successful child, so I don't, his grades <laughs> bounced up because of this bike seat. I really hope he's really successful now, and he can get in touch. And yeah, well, he's sort of evidently maybe sliming his way up through the world, buying a <laughs> bike seat. So I'm very, I was very skeptical about this as a child. <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't. I didn't think that that's where this conversation was going to go. It's one of my vivid childhood memories. Yeah. Actually, sitting in the back of the class. Yeah, um, I was about ten. Yeah, probably but, one of the teachers' vivid memories. Let's face it, as well. I know it's a bit. It's a bit personal, isn't it? Giving a jelly bike seat. Um, a bike seat. Concerningly intimate, I would say. That's that's a ve- that's very yes. nicely put, uh, Gabby. It's extraordinary, extraordinary. Um, let's move on and talk about swearing now, don't we? I've got, I've got, I'm, I've, I'm on standby. So I've got. Should there, should there be any need to? I can now control the bleep machine. But can you? Well, it's a kind of trigger test. Can you get to the button fast enough? Well, we'll find out. I've got to try and beat you. I've got to try and f and blind quicker than you can beat me. <laughs> well, actually, the flaw in this is that we could just talk over it, so you're definitely going to be able to hear. Anyway, uh, James, you've written about swearing. Let's talk about your love of swearing without swearing. Words such as the F word yes. or the B word or the S word. No, uh, I, 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 think, I think it's actually possible to talk about uh, love of swearing without swearing. Go on. Uh, I was just amused by the fact that there was some research allegedly carried out by an artificial intelligence machine uh, which had discovered there were 60,000 swear words broadcast on British television last year. And I was saying, you know, I guess the kind of standard response is, oh, God, decline of standard. Swearing isn't very clever. And I was saying that actually swearing is pretty clever and interesting. And in English, we are blessed with lots of good swear words, such as, and actually, you could beat me there, but I'm not going to say them because I'm going to be responsible. Because I was actually once, on, I got in trouble on Times Radio for swearing before. Did you? Yeah. What did you say on this show? Yeah, I said, well, I can't say what I said, but well, I think us- you were away. <laughs> Uh, and somebody yeah. else was was in, and they had to apologise for me profusely to the audience. The only time it's happened in this slot was uh, Robert Crampton. What did Robert Crampton I say? I made a joke about his age. We were talking about Alice had noted. I think it was when it must have been when Rishi Sunak became prime minister. And she said it was the first time for me that we've had a prime minister who's younger than me. Uh, and Robert said, "Oh no, no, it's happened to that's happened to me before." And I said, "It was Churchill, wasn't it?" And he just went, "F off." <laughs> Quite aggressively into the microphone. You've got to work out what everybody's little, how you can wind everybody up to yeah. make them swear. What yeah, is the yeah. way? To, what is the way to get them? Gabby, where do you stand on swearing? 
Uh, I do it constantly, but unimaginatively, unfortunately, which is a, basically a function of having worked in newspapers for a long time and started in the very, very, very sweary, sweary 1990s. So it's my constant fear when I go on radios. And the minute you start talking about swearing, all I can, and you start thinking, don't swear, don't swear, does it? You, you know you're going to do it. But I'm probably not as bad as Dominic Cummings. That's all I can say judging by the contents of the COVID inquiry. But, I but I mean, you know, aside, just put to one side his politics and his competence and all of that, but, for instance, the phrase useless pigs... Yes, good was, phrase. Good gr- phrase. Great, great phrase. the thick of it come to life. Yeah. Which is what we should all desire for our politics. Well, maybe not quite, but it adds, it adds <laughs> a little special uh, sparkle over things, doesn't it? Um, yeah, he gave it, that to the nation anyway. That was something. Really artful swearing is... is It's fun. I, it's silly to say it's not fun because it's obviously funny. I think I think the big difference is you don't like you don't want to be just aggressive like telling you to F off. No. You can be more artful. Although you wrote that Christopher Hitchens said that you thought that the phrase F off was the... Was it the second? The second greatest gift of the British Empire to the world. Yeah. Which is... What was pretty, the first? Football. Oh, okay. I mean, the idea the two, of, those two things also quite often go hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, the idea of the British Empire having given any gifts to the world is now probably not very, uh, not very correct. Let alone. <laughs> I the was going to say, is there some kind of swearing Elgin Marbles trade that we could do here that that yes, you know you, satisfied everyone? Maybe. Do other countries yeah. swear well? Well, my my thesis in my column, which I actually got in trouble for, was I was saying that English is a satisfying language to swear in because have lots of good consonants that are satisfying to kind of spit out. And I said, um, well, I suppose I can't say Spanish swear words on the radio, but they all sound so beautiful. All these swear words in, in um, Spain and France, they all sound like some little patisserie cakes or something. But- German swearing is good, actually. German swear, well, I, I learned this mostly from my offspring going on a German exchange visit. And obviously the traditional purpose of a, of a foreign exchange school visit is to learn how to swear in the other person's language. But yeah, German, <laughs> German is very, because it's kind of a bit guttural as well. So you can kind of spit the swear word out quite satisfying. My argument was that German swearing is almost a bit too sinister because the language is too, almost too aggressive. It all sounds like swearing, even when it's exactly. Sausages. And we've probably all been conditioned by kind of war films and stuff to... You know, interpret it extra, um, extra negatively. Uh, well, let's um, let's just pause there because we've managed to get through talking about swearing without anyone doing it. So I think we will we'll call that a success. Dissecting news of the day, he rides in on his impartial sleigh. Politics without the boring bits. Let's take a deep dive into policy, kids. Surely on Times Radio, Monday to Friday, ten till one. Monday to Friday, ten till one. One of my favourites. That uh, that's from uh, Bennett, uh, who actually got in touch with the daily. I think he's been very well, but he's uh, he's feeling uh, better. I think so. Bennett, thank you for that. It's one of my favourites of the homemade Christmas jingles. If you want to send us a Christmas jingle, you can email me Matt at Times Radio. Matt at Times Radio. Uh, right, still joined by James Marriott and Gabby Hinsliff. And I wanted to talk now about what happens when politicians meet children. You know, kids say the funniest things, aren't they? Downing Street have released a, a video of a gang of excitable children, I think they're about five years old, just overwhelming Rishi Sunak with questions, and then they end up hugging him. It's quite, I think it's quite sweet, and I think he handles it quite well. Uh, here they are asking him some tough questions, like whether he's got a pet at home and what he wants for Christmas. Do you have a pet? Do I have a pet? Yeah. Yes. 
We have a what dog you, called Nova. Her name Nova. is Nova. She's the dog. She's a Labrador. What do you want for oh. Christmas? What do I want for Christmas? Yes. Oh what gosh, I haven't really thought about that actually. I'd like to have a day off. What would you like to be when you're little? When, when I was little, right, when I was your age. Now, I don't know when I was five what I wanted to be. When I was a bit older, I wanted to be like a Star Wars character, like a Jedi Knight. Or fly an X-Wing. Now, have you heard of an X-Wing? No! No, okay. <laughs> I think it's quite cute, but you've got to think about the politicians and where they interact with children. Uh, and the sort of person who collects uh, examples of this is James Hill, uh, the political correspondent for The Spectator, who joins us <laughs> now. Hi, James. Hi, Matt. Right, first of all, we'll get to some historic examples in a moment. What did you make of how Rishi Sinat got on with the children? Well, I think he did all right, given the circumstances. And um, I'm sure, as we'll discuss, there's plenty of examples of politicians handling it a lot worse. His team obviously want to put him as someone, you know, who's young, energetic, got new ideas. And the Tories can actually talk about education as one of their better track record areas. Um, so it's not surprising he's with these um, kids um, all the time in schools. And of course, there was the famous moment last year when he said he was a coke addict. Uh, and then clarified it was Diet Coke he was talking about. No, no, no it's not Diet Coke. It's Mexican Coke because it's full, full... Oh, Mexican Coke. Sorry. Yeah. I yes, of course. He, said, I'm a drink, a, he was speaking to some students stop. and said, I'm a Coke addict. I'm a total Coke <laughs> addict. And then he, he had to clarify. But... So here are some other examples. Um, this is Keir Starmer. Uh, mm. Not quite getting the kids quite so excited. He barely seems to change his tone when talking to children. Good morning. You having a nice day? Is it stressful being an MP? It's a lovely thing to do, to be a Member of Parliament, representing everybody in that area. It's a real privilege. And it's where I live as well. It's where my children go to school, so it means a lot to me to represent my local area. But I did other things first, so I became a lawyer, and then I worked in Northern Ireland, which was incredible. And then I ran the prosecution service in England and Wales. And then eventually, I turned up in Parliament. What do other people want to do? <laughs> Do they put that music on it to make it even more soporific? <laughs> Incredible. It was so strangely emotional. Yeah. <laughs> These children, sorry, sorry, how are you spending prosecution service? Uh, and then uh, this is Boris Johnson taking a slightly different approach uh, and getting really stuck in. Oh my God, it's a, a worm. It's a huge worm. Big worm. <laughs> massive. It's a massive worm. We're trying to escape. Hey! We don't want to kill you. We don't want to kill you. See, that's quite cute. I think I think be able to. What do you think, Gabby? Lots of experience with children, of course, Boris Johnson. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. very good. Definitely very helps. Good. Very good. <laughs> His uh, child minding. He's in the paper today. Have you seen him? He's in the paper today, dressed as Father Christmas, with another one of his children. Um, uh, Clyde, he's up. He's up a ladder, dressed as Father Christmas, putting the star on the top of the. Now, the clip that I really wanted to find, because it's one, of, and I can't find it anyway, because it's it's quite odd. It's Gordon Brown, back in. When was this sort of, oh, it was a long time ago, uh, 2010, I think. Uh, Gordon mm. Brown um, was asked by some children, I think it was on like the, the, the children who yeah, pretended to be journalists, this all went in an interview with Gordon Brown, and they asked Gordon Brown, what's your favourite food? And he said, this is a verbatim, traditional things like steak and all that. I love spaghetti bolognese and carbonara and all these things. I like Chinese food. I like Indian food. I like English food, British food and French. I like almost anything. And then the 14-year-old like, had to really push him to try and get him to commit to one of them. And he just went back to the beginning and said, I'd like steak. <laughs> and it's such a good clip and we can't find it anywhere because it's in that sort of weird bit where... Um, 
Uh, but it's it's just summed up. Gordon Brown had reached that point where he he just couldn't even commit to a food. Everybody uh, asked by a child. Um, do you think it makes any difference, James uh, Hill, ultimately to uh, a politician's uh, electoral prospects? Well, it can create the narrative. Of course, the most famous example probably is 2001, where Tony Blair was launching his uh, campaign at the St. Olive School in um, Southwark. And um, what unfortunately happened was that it gave a sort of messianic entrance there. And he, uh, he were there with the sort of singing school children were there. And then he was pictured uh, reading in you know, a prayer book, hymn book, uh, with it looking very sort of like a Christ-like figure with a backdrop. And uh, unfortunately, it was a rather soporific way of talking to children as well. And of course, as soon as the uh, press conference was over, all the hacks then rushed to talk to the children. And uh, one of them was quoted in the Times, that great newspaper, uh, as describing it as a pack of lies. And um, basically, that then set the narrative that Labour were taking it for complacent, that were trying to politicized there was too much spin rather than substance so actually there are perils with children just to say matt quickly the other great clip of a oh no we've lost him we've lost him with a crucial we'll never know we'll never know we'll have to what is the great clip he's complete he's just amazing my favorite one is you know that photo of of david cameron when he's reading with a small child visit nursery or something and he's reading and the kid is like head down on their books on the desk and it's just like yeah that went around the world. The Boris Johnson basically. photo shoots are great because Boris Johnson basically looks like an oversized child in a primary school class. sitting cross-legged on the floor. In a <laughs> and it just looks like he's never left primary school. <laughs> the or the one where he played rugby, actually, and took out yes. every small child <laughs> on the pitch. Yes, Do you remember that? Yes, in Japan somewhere. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, Boris Johnson was never happier than when he was with that child talking about, oh, look at that big worm. <laughs> <laughs> that's where that's what his life should have been. Yeah. The well, dangerous ones are sixth formers. You never want to talk to sixth formers because they've got political opinions and challenge you. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. younger kids are safer, aren't they? For yeah, those, those, those. It was. It seemed like a genuinely nice moment for Rishi Sunak and those children, given um, given everything been, else has been going on. Gabby Hinsley from the Guardian and James Mayer from the Times. You can read James in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we're going into the British Film Institute's political archive. 45 Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. It might feel like politics is constantly evolving, but some things never change. 
spin. The British Film Institute has compiled a collection of British political campaigning films and broadcasts spanning more than a hundred years. You can take a look at them all yourself. This this full spectrum of political promo from the dawn of the 20th century right up to today. It's all on the BFI's website. But today we're going to go through some of the highlights and here to talk us through them, Patrick Russell, uh, head of the non-fiction team of the BFI at National Archive. Um, Patrick, before we listen to some of your, your highlights, what makes a good political film for it to be in your archive? Yeah, it's a really fascinating question, Matt, and people might think the BFI National Archive is just about collecting the great feature films or the great television programmes. We do do that, but it's actually collecting examples of all the ways that moving image has been used to express ideas and to communicate with people across the 20th and the 21st century. And one of those is party political communication. And as you said, that's a, that's a long history. What's really interesting, I think, is even though the political issues change, the economy changes, the particular dynamics of political parties change, the basics have really been the same since certainly the 1930s, if not before, which is you've got these basic forms, drama, documentary, animation, celebrity endorsements, all the things we're familiar with today, those were there in the 1920s and 1930s. And really, I think they're probably primarily trying to do two things. One is galvanise supporters of a political party or political movement to get them to go out there and campaign, or to try to win over sceptics or floating voters. So there's those two basic political situations, I think, into which all those different genres of film kind of land. I suppose it's interesting, because normally if you think of the BFI, people think of, like you said, great films, great TV shows or films that people love or are revered artistically or creatively. There's a sort of different bar to be cleared here. It's not that people love a part of political broadcast. And they're quite disposable, you know, because the politicians in them or the messages they're communicating are disposable. You know, it's not like people think, oh, tonight I'm going to sit down and watch a party political broadcast from 1931. I think they're, the interesting thing is they're ephemeral and timeless at the same mm. time. They're ephemeral, they're absolutely of that moment. So you look at the films from the 1930s, they're about the national government, they're about trade tariffs, they're about recovering from the Great Depression, um, very different issues from now. But as I say, the, the basic politics of the situation is the same and they're, they're meeting kind of timeless communication needs using creativity. So, as you say, it, not necessarily great fine art, but great applied art. Yeah. You know, it's, it's using the moving image medium in order to get across an idea towards members of the public or sections of the public in order to create action, which is ultimately action in the polling booth. And actually, you know, it goes so far back to the 20s and 30s. We asked you to pick out some of your favourites from the collection. And the first uh, couple were, were silent cartoons, which, bearing in mind, we're on the radio to make for brilliant listening. But there's, uh, there's a Conservative and Unionist Film Association. We're so pleased with their metaphor of uh, Labour-led Britain as a broken-down car in need of a toy MOT. They made not one but two cartoons on the theme in short succession. There's another one. It's great, this, because it's got a, a sort of cuddly caricature of David Lloyd George in it, this sort of black and white yes. uh, animation. And so it's really interesting that right from the dawn of moving pictures, almost, politicians were trying to get in on the act and, and weaponise it for their for their cause. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, that the, the Conservative Party was probably so to speak, the most progressive of political parties in terms of of catching up with the potential of the film medium. There was a left-wing tradition in political film in the 1930s, but that tended to be 
outside of the world of party politics, outside of the Labour Party. The Conservative and Unionist Films Association, which you mentioned, was really the first kind of embedding within a political party of an attempt to use the film medium. And the way those films were distributed was basically mobile cinema vans that would turn up in town squares during election campaigns and would would project these these films in that environment. As you say, some of these were animations. They're basically hand-drawn, line-drawn animations, which use metaphor, you know, the socialist car of state, uh, and also use caricature. Lloyd George, Baldwin, whom they present positively, obviously Ramsay MacDonald. Um, so, you know, right at the dawn of political communication using the film medium, you, you, have, you have animation, caricature, metaphor, kind of built into the repertoire of, of moving image uh, expression for, the, for, the, for political purposes. And then a few years later, we, we do get some sound. So let's jump to uh, 1935. This is a Conservative and Unionist Party election campaign film. This features a debate between a pair of no-nonsense mill workers discussing the merits of safeguarding, or, or what we now understand to be trade tariffs, uh, to ward off uh, cheap imports. Let's take a listen. I've been studying this a lot since we've had no work. And this here safeguarding seems to me plain common sense. And chap who stand for it. Oh, I don't know, Bill. I've always looked upon that sort of stuff as politicians talk. Here, just really think that what they and the papers say is anything to be guided by. It isn't what they say. Interesting, you, you talk about it. It's sort of amateur dramatics in that the uh, you know it's just politicians talk. You know, this is this is almost a hundred years ago, but it, the sentiment, if not quite the recording quality, could be something that, that you'd hear now. You might suggest this is this particular film is a piece of sort of red wall facing populism yeah, 19, yeah, yeah. 1930s really style um so the the the, the, con- the high concept of the film is it's two lancashire cotton workers discussing these quite arcane issues around uh trade protectionism etc whether they're actually Lancashire cotton workers or whether they're rather trained actors <laughs> uh, portraying Lancashire cotton workers is a little bit lost to history but it's again it's a different technique in the repertoire from from the really? animation that we discussed and it, it's it's an attempt to try to try to meet a certain voter base where the political communicators think they can reach them and it's an attempt to sort of use empathy and aspiration and those sorts of techniques and drama and scripting and acting. Obviously it was an unusual election at this period because you know the mid-1930s you had the national government led by Ramsay MacDonald's and this is so this is a uh, the popular monologuist Stanley Holloway I'm not totally familiar with his work, but you assure me he's popular. Uh, recalling what happened when the comic character Sam Small visited Parliament. This is a film specifically advocating the policies of the national government. We all ought to listen to Sam, lads. From St Anne's to St Stephen's he's known. He's loyal to duty and country. And he's on speaking terms with the throne. Said Sam, it don't need Nelson's spyglass. To see what this government's done. Unemployment, they've brought down a million, and they'll try hard to bring it to none. They've tackled the slums and bad housing, and you'll soon be unable to see them, for there won't be a slum in the country. Maybe one in the British Museum. We'll gloss over the quality of the rhyming uh, in, uh, in that one. No, we, we shouldn't. <laughs> it's, uh, it's fine poetry. <laughs> 
regional accents again. And, you know, nowadays we'd, we'd overanalyse a regional accent in a party political broadcast, but presumably the same thing was going on then. The, the accents and class, you know, was obviously a much bigger, played a much bigger part in that. There's interest in both those films using sort of northern regional accents. Yeah, so I, I guess the point is, behind the scenes, however crude they might appear to us today, there's both an element of, of kind of communications calibration going on in the minds of the people commissioning these films and in the minds of the people producing them. And as I said, you know, the element of celebrity endorsement. Mm. You know, if we think celebrity endorsement of political parties is a 21st century phenomenon, think again. We can see it right there in, in uh, the 1930s. It was Stanley, Stanley Holloway. Uh, let's jump then to the 1940s. In the post-war election, Labour come in uh, under Clement Attlee. In 1948, the Conservative Party uh, had this film trying to show Labour politicians like the Prime Minister Clement Attlee as being a sort of stepping stone to a communist state. Where will the resistance to communism in Britain come from? Will it come from Mr Bevin and his well-meaning, inexhaustible patience? Will it come from Mr Attlee, that man of quiet and unhurried reasonableness? Will it come from a party which hesitates to get rid of acknowledged fellow travellers and crypto-communists? No, it will not come from socialism. The real champion against communism is the Conservative Party. Again, you can hear the production values improving, the music in the background. It sounds like a film of the time. It's uh, a lot of people would recognise that as being having features in common with the newsreel style mm. of the time and the style of public information films of the time. Interestingly, in terms of the sort of emotional political technique, I guess it's connecting back to the animation, the socialist car of state, the fear, like it's it's playing on a fear element rather than the more friendly approach of the two sound films I suppose that we the, heard. There were two options. You either big yes. yourself up or do down the other side, and yeah, that was yeah. very much the yeah. uh, the latter, that one. Uh, in 1959, Tony Benn, lots of people will be familiar with Tony Benn, but before he became an MP, he was a big, he was a sort of creative spin doctor of his day uh, for the Labour Party. Uh, here he is presenting a Labour Party election campaign which was actually opened by Hugh Gateskill, the Labour leader at the time. He talks about, amongst other things, the issue of nuclear disarmament. Uh, getting rid of all the arms everywhere, so long as it is all the arms everywhere, and with proper controls, is surely something we should always, we should always welcome and all welcome. Uh, and uh, if you say, well, it's just propaganda, I would say the best thing then is to test it out. And it'll be exposed if it is propaganda, and if it isn't, then we shall get somewhere. Obviously, uh, unfortunately, Hugh Gaitskill died before he uh, could become Prime Minister. Well, let's jump now to the 1960s. 1964, uh, this is obviously the election of Alec Douglas Hume, has just replaced Harold Macmillan. Uh, Harold Wilson is the coming man. And Jennifer Gay of ATV Today interviewed some school children about politics. Well, there's Conservative, Liberal, Labour and Communist. Neither convertible... Um, I don't know anyone. Do you know who the Prime Minister is? Yes, Sir Halleck Douglas Hume. And who's the leader of the Labour Party? Um, Mr Harold Wilson. Do you know any of the names of the other political parties? Yes, Mr Jogerman's over the Liberal. And um, Mr George Brown is over the Conservative. If you were 21, who would you vote for? Conservative. Why? Because they don't tax you so much and um, Prime Minister's the head of it. How would you vote? I'd vote for either. Can you tell us why? 
because we, we rang up from school earlier and we, we fly back. Wow. I mean, they're sewing. I'm not sure if you went to a primary school now and said, who's the... Li-? Well, you could, if you went anywhere and said, who's the leader of the Liberal Democrats or the Greens, you'd get those answers. Is that is that reflective, do you think, of all school children as a particularly uber-engaged group? I think taking an historical view, sort of moving forward from the stuff we've listened to, mm. to that piece, obviously the key thing that happens in the post-war period is the coming of television. So you move from those film-based pieces of communication earlier to a world where you both have gate school, addressing the audience in a televisual style. And then, as you say, alongside that, you get the coming of current affairs, political reportage, and this new space that's created, um, which is kind of a shared space, because there's only a small number of TV channels that everybody watches. It's very different from the world that existed before the war, before television, very different from today's fragmented social media world. I suppose that's right. You've got a TV in the front room for the first time but there's only one or two things on it. Yeah. So children are watching the news and learning yep. who Mr. Yep. Howard Wilson exactly. is because, well, there's nothing else to watch uh, and there's no, you know, separate screens or, or, or whatever. Exactly. Well, speaking of children, the following year, 1965, the then newly elected baby of the house, the youngest MP, David Steele, he made it clear what he thought, this is very meta this, what he thought of the party political broadcast TV format during a Liberal Party political broadcast. Party political broadcasts have always bored me. I've always regretted that you can't even switch over to the other channel because they're on that one too. And they've become so dull of late uh, that attention is no longer paid to what is actually being said. Instead, controversy rages over whether sufficient powder has been applied to the cheekbones of the speaker or whether he shows his teeth when he smiles. And now, after the Roxburgh Selkirk and Peebles by-election, I find myself taking part in a party political broadcast. They're sort of undermining the form while using the form. I suppose, again, you know, I'm different. And often, you know, sort of the third party does. is sort of we're, we're different. We don't really agree with all this, but we've just got to go along with it. It's a form of humble-breaking, I suppose. Yeah, it's it's self, self-effacement. I, I've never liked these things, but I suppose i better do one now. Yes, Matt Shorty on Times Radio. We are in the BFI National Archive with Patrick Russell, looking at not the, the films and TV shows that we might expect the British Film Institute to be collecting, but some of the party political broadcasts and films uh, that are part of the collection, many of which won't have been heard or seen since... Since they were first used, you know, during whichever election campaign it was, Patrick. Yeah, these these films were made for their moment. They were made for now, whenever now was. That makes them particularly fascinating to revisit in later years. So we reach uh, 1967. It's interesting the, the way that the form of the party political broadcast has changed over the years. Uh, back in the 1960s, the parties had three 10-minute TV slots to film. And now they're down to sort of... Three or four minutes, I think. Uh, the Labour Party tried to do something a little bit different. Explain, first of all, before we hear the clip, what is it that the Labour Party tried to do? Yeah, so this is a very fascinating film. I think it's called Education for the Future. So this was not an, a party election broadcast, it was a party political broadcast, so it was midterm. And basically, they hired a filmmaker to go out and effectively make a mini-documentary about comprehensive education. It hardly even mentions the Labour Party, but instead it uses an observational documentary technique to go into a, a secondary comprehensive school in Hull and use the experiences that it finds there to to present a kind of broad, positive picture of comprehensivization of education. I suppose because this is a, an audience that's becoming more 
media illiterate. They're familiar with the form of the independent journalistic documentary. So sort of harnessing the the cliches, the the direction, the narration to then present a, a partisan view of what's going on in schools in that in that way. So let's take a listen. This is Albert Rowe, uh, head teacher at David Lister High School in Kingston upon Hull. It was the filmmaker Derek Knight made this, but here here is the uh, the head teacher Albert Rowe uh, talking about those benefits of comprehensive education. <laughs> Well, a comprehensive school is about educating everybody. It's about the individual pupil. It sets out to give each pupil the greatest possible equality of educational opportunity. And I hasten to say here, the greatest possible equal opportunity to be different, to prove that we are unequal. There's a subtlety and a quality to that film that I think is both of merit in its own right, but also helps to make it effective as a piece of kind of political education in the broad sense, sort of trying to inform the wider public view of the political environment in which policy changes are being implemented. And not saying so crassly, therefore vote Labour, but just wanting people to think, I saw a thing on the TV last night, our schools are doing quite well, aren't they? And just lodging that as a seed. Like you said, it's midterm, so it's not trying to push people into making a decision about voting, but reinforcing the it's, idea it's that sort under of, the it, Labour it's government. In, it's kind of uh, providing nutrition into the kind of information yeah. ecosystem, I yeah, suppose, in a way. Really fascinating, that. This one, now this one I love. So this isn't a, a party political broadcast. This is The Clangers. Now, listen, this, listeners of a... Of a of a certain age, we're familiar with this. Uh, the pink knitted creatures, they live on a little blue planet. So they put out a, an episode coinciding with the general election in 1974. Now, the Clangers aren't taken with the prospect of a society ruled by one group, even though the soup dragon stands for an election on a free soup for all ticket. <laughs> soup must be paid for. Hmm. Hey, hey, but what with? I mean, you don't have any money. Free soup for all. Yes, that should catch the votes. No soup for froglets. Dear me, you do learn fast. Now, now wait a minute, wait, wait, we must hear from the froglet. Now, froglet, what is your policy? Well, that's just rude. Ah, uh, whatever the soup dragon wants, he is against it. Right. Now, who is going to support the froglet? Ah, now you are a political party. I love that as a as a satire of of politics, even today. What's your policy? Whatever he's not doing. There seem to be some tax and spend <laughs> debates going <laughs> on there. Well, yeah, uh, yeah. And um, I think there were two 1974 general elections, weren't there? So it was a, yeah, there poli- were, a politically febrile time. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. A Conservative Prime Minister up against high inflation, high energy bills, going to the country and and uh, it not working out. I can't imagine how that might work. Uh, exactly 50 years it will be next year. So let's hear now about some of the sort of things that might end up in the uh, in the archive in the future. And first of all, this is a Tory campaign video from 2019. Your vote matters. With your vote, you decide. Do you stop the arguing or let it carry on? End the argument. Stop the chaos. Vote Conservative. Get Brexit done. Get all of this done. 
and move on. The thing that struck me about that is having obviously reported on and covered that election, I didn't remember that ad at all. And maybe you're right, the, the personalisation, the segmentation, you know, just the amount of stuff that gets pumped out now, you know, it's easy to miss them. And in the interest of balance, here is one from Labour from, uh, from 2019 as well. Dementia tax, gone. Millions losing their winter fuel allowance, gone. Fox hunting ban, gone. When you got poll of this morning, the Conservatives on 48% of the vote, Labour on half that. We, the media, the pundits, the experts, no, nothing. The biggest campaign growth since polling began. So that's a Labour message there, again sort of trying to drum up the, repeating the excitement of, uh, of 2017. Both both of them using, you know, strong voices, music, actually all sorts of in keeping with the media language that we're familiar with right now. Um, Patrick Russell, just finally, it's interesting where those two la- final clips fit into this grand sweep of basically 100 years of political video. Yeah, I think fascinating. Um, I think those are both two very strong pieces, looking at them from a kind of filmmaking and a communications perspective and they they illustrate those two kind of different uses of film the conservative one is trying to win over potential floating voters the labor one i think it was basically their social media launch video is galvanizing their supporters to go out and campaign so the labor video obviously you've you've heard the sounds you haven't seen the (laughs) pictures people can find those online but the labor one it has a very kind of infectious repulsive very well crafted edited forward sweep to it that pulls the viewer along into wanting to go out and campaign the conservative piece has more of a sort of pantomime style in a way so the the pictures that go with the sound that you've heard is very much a kind of stage scenario of kind of characters playing politicians arguing in front of a kind of a black screen representing the um the quandary which the party is proposing that they solve it's the basically get brexit done argument you know and obviously both of those parties then pursued both of these different strategies in different ways across the campaign but both like very very strong thought through pieces of campaigning film both of which like directly exactly everything that was happening in the 1930s win over your sceptics and your floating voters, galvanise your supporters. You've got drama, you've got documentary, you've got animation, and use filmmaking style to achieve a, a result. That, I think, however much the world of politics changes over the next hundred years, I think that will still remain the essence of political party film in the years to come. And people, just to say, people can catch all of this stuff that we've got in our collection. It's called Never Mind the Ballots. Very good. And uh, it's available on the BFI player, along with many, many, many hundreds of other films from the BFI National Archive that are available free to the available free to the whole public. Oh, Patrick, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I've spent far too long uh, trawling through the archive because it's, I think I'll just watch one more, one more. And you, what's so fascinating is the way that the characters might change, the message might change because the policies change, but the form and uh, uh, the, the way that political parties, again and again, whether it's silent animation to you know directly speaking to viewers to the use of music the use of voiceovers the, then you know now the use of sort of social media techniques reflecting our times all the time as well it's absolutely fascinating the more things change the more they stay the same exactly right patrick uh, patrick russell from the uh, british film institute's national archive uh, the non-fiction team there uh, thanks very much for joining us on time Radio. thank you
that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Redbox Podcast. Don't forget, if you're a Time subscriber, link your Time subscription to your Apple account, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, you can get a bonus episode every Saturday. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash bonus podcasts. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.